Welcome to Table Variation. This is episode 91. I'm Matt. No, I'm Walter. I'm I'm Walter. Oh, am I Matt? Okay. You're Matt. I'm Walter. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this this is a podcast where we talk about role-playing games and, and other games and stuff like that. Yeah. And today we talk about why it should die. No, no, oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> we talk about the natural life cycle of a, of a game system, and sometimes they, they come to an end, and hopefully it's an organic end, you know? It's not yeah. like the ending of uh, it's not like the ending of Firefly where it just got canceled. Uh, it's like an actual end. Like the end of uh, I don't know, what's a TV show that had an, the end of Cowboy Bebop, right? Like it actually had an ending? Yeah, a real scripted ending that they wanted. Yeah, yeah, the difference there. Although both of those shows, which only had one season, also came out with a movie afterwards. Fun fact. That is true. Uh, there you go. They're, they're both in space. There's many similarities. They're both, they're both space cowboys. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is Table Variation. Cue the music. <laughs> I want to talk about when a game system reaches the end of its life. And I guess to explain that to you, the first thing I would talk about is how I think of like the life cycle of a game system, right? So let's say like you and your buddies wanted to make a Dungeons and Dragons type role playing game. So you sit down, you have your idea and you're like, this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. You go back and forth, you figure out the rules for it, you adjust it however you want. So it goes from an idea stage to like a production or a design stage where you're developing it. Maybe you're like producing it and you're distributing it on the internet. Maybe you're like selling the PDFs or whatever. Then it's out there in the world. People respond to it. You have to make adjustments because, oh shit, we didn't realize like the longsword was the most powerful weapon in the game. So now we have to adjust it. So you have this uh, like errata phase, right? Where there's patches maybe, or there's some updates and changes you make to it. And then you either immediately go to, we're no longer providing updates for this game, we're done updating this game system. Or you go through like expansion modules, or maybe you even have like a second edition of it come out that builds on the first. So like we go from third to 3.5, right? We have that extra edition come out and we have all these expansion modules that come out and you're kind of keeping it alive by adding new little updates to it. So then- Okay. The question becomes, when is it time to like reach that shelf life? Like, when are you done with a game system? You know, what are the benefits to a game system retiring? And where are the benefits to it not retiring? And kind of the fallout of that happening. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, hmm. I guess using the obvious tabletop examples, like you said, you know, like with D&D moving between editions or recently, you know, Pathfinder moving to version two. I don't think there's necessarily a good answer because I think there's any time it happens, right? There's plenty of people who would say, oh, why are we changing? You know, third edition is perfectly fine or, you know, Pathfinder one is great. Why are you trying to change it or something like that? But at the same time, and we've talked about this before. Well, yeah, okay, so... So expand on that. Like, so what are the pitfalls of, you know, ending your your game system? So I think it's a it's a give and take mostly between new players and old players. The longer a system exists, the 
less inviting it is to get new players, right? You know, when I very first started playing Pathfinder with like you and Steve, you know, coming into it and being like, holy shit, there is a lot of material out there. And, you know, if, if you were someone who's like, yeah, I want to, you know, pick up some books and things like that. It's like it can be overwhelming of what should you get on the flip side, you know, coming into like fifth edition, right? When they, when it released, there's, there's like the core books and that's it. And so if you're a, an enfranchised player, you come in and there's like, well, why can't I do X, Y, and Z? Well, that's not out yet or something like that. Right. But it's much more simple at that point. So it's way more inviting to a new player. It, I was saying inherently for like Paizo and Wizards, they are companies. They do want to make money. They make money by getting new people to buy books. Yeah, and they're towing this line. You're you're running this fine line between we want it to be accessible to the maximum amount of players while at the same time incentivizing our players to be, as you were saying, uh, uh, invested in the game, right? So they don't feel disenfranchised if we're, you know, switching editions every year. Something like uh, Warhammer switches editions, it feels like, every year or two. And there are players that feel very disenfranchised that now all of these books they've bought are worthless. The counterpoint for them, though, is that you know your models are still valuable, but all of your, your books are worthless. You have to buy them again every couple of years. So you know that, that's like a very fast pace where you're just like churning out new stuff uh, on like an annual or semi-annual basis, whereas something like Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons or Star Wars, you get a new edition once every, you know, it feels like five or 10 years. It's a, it's a more substantial period of time. Yeah. So yeah. You feel like, you know, okay, well again, it kind of goes to that new versus old player, right? Like, okay, we're a brand new game. Uh, how, you know, how much do I want to invest in this? Right. Cause mm-hmm. you know, if books cost 50 bucks and they're only going to be good for like, two or three years, I don't really want to spend any money. But if books cost 50 bucks and it's like, oh, well, yeah, your book's going to be totally usable for like, you know, 10 or 15 years. Because I mean, like how long was, you know, Pathfinder one, right? Like you get some serious mileage out of that. That was another thought I had is that, you know, another knock against it, right? When you completely end the lifespan of a game by saying we're no longer providing updates for it, we're moving on from like version one of this system to version two, and all your version one stuff is trash, is that you know you're, you might be even doing it for these altruistic reasons of like, I want to get new players, or whatever the positives may be, which we can talk about later. But you're not just discarding your bad systems that you've designed, you're discarding all your systems, right? So let's say there's some class, right? Let's say you had the uh, the wizard class and it started off really bad, but you know there were three or four adjustments to it. There was erratas, there was some back and forth with your players, you like updated it. And now it's like one of the most favorite classes because it deals with magic in a very cool way. You come out with a new system, unless you're using that framework still, which you most likely aren't, you're just developing something completely new and all of that... Um, trial and error that you went through with that previous system is discarded. And there might be some, you know, spiritual lessons or whatever. There might be some like uh, very high level lessons you can draw from it. But, you know, the math is going to be completely different. The class isn't going to work at all the same. And to translate into more of a video game sense, if you wanted to talk about that, you know, if you coded, uh, you know, all the stuff for Diablo 2 and then you go into Diablo 3 and you want to bring your barbarian over, 
that we're not we're not touching any of the Diablo 2 code, right? Like we're going to have a completely different barbarian for Diablo 3. Even if it has the same abilities, it's it's completely new code. Had, we're not we're not messing with any of that old stuff. Which I think I mean tangentially brings up an interesting point and kind of going back to what you were saying about like oh the wizard is really good or really bad or whatever. It is interesting, you know, you would think with uh going to like a new edition or you know, Diablo 2 to Diablo 3 for a video game or something like that, you would expect, okay, we're the designers. We we have our third edition for D&D. Um, you know, these are the things that were good. These are the things that weren't so good. So in fourth edition, we'll, we'll use the things that were good still, but maybe imp- iterate and improve a little, and we'll change the things that were bad. And like, that's what you would expect, right? Like, we'll iterate on ourselves and give you a better, more improved product. Sorry, that's more of like a 3.5, though, versus a whole new edition right well i mean it it is to an extent but like you would almost ex or at least i would almost expect that the game would be similar just improved right i would think okay well they've had i will use you know pathfinder we'll go back to that version one to version two you would think well you know they've had like 15 years of pathfinder one they put out a ton of content they've learned a whole lot of stuff you know how are they making it better for version two and instead and you can argue better or worse but it's like drastically different it doesn't feel like the same game right and you know the class fantasy might still exist and the generic idea of like we have an armor class and we have an initiative modifier and i roll an attack and i use a d20 to do it and i'm trying to hit their armor class all those core concepts right those very high level design things are the same but the the individual mathematics of how it pans out you know isn't And that's something they have to be very careful of when you're going between these editions. The last thing I thought of when I was coming up with my short list of things that are negatives to getting rid of an old system, right? The the stuff that people would, you know, you'll see on the forums complaining about or whatever. There's also a tendency for a lot of these third party um, fans. And when I mean fans, I don't mean like you and I are fans. I mean like people that you know have a job where they're producing third-party content for this game right um we're producing adventures if it's a role-playing game we're writing you know source books for it because it's under the open gaming license or even with video games you know maybe the previous version allowed you to stream it in a certain way or to spectate matches in a certain way and then a subsequent version comes out that restricts that or forces you to use their specific you know, streaming platform, which is subpar to the one you were using. So there's there's that drawback as well, where you can impact. And when I say fans, I mean like these content creators that are not your employees as the designer of this game, but they are generating a huge amount of interest in your game by producing this content for free, right? So if you went, let's say, from D&D Next to D&D 6th Edition and it was utter trash, Critical Role might stop making the critical role podcast and that's something you would want to keep in mind as you're making this decision to retire your old system and go to a new one i mean that's that's fair um i don't know like i can sort of see the when and even the why of like why like a new system right so pathfinder or dnd or whatever it's been We've been making this stuff for 15 years. It's time to like update it, but it's a print product and that's hard to do. So we'll do a new edition. But then you get things like going from third, three, five to fourth edition. And you're like, this isn't even the same game. 
Well, and that that gets a little muddier as well is because I, I, you know, I was not in the room, right? We were not in the room. We were way too young to be in the room on any of these conversations that were happening between the people at these companies. But if you try to read any of the literature that's out there about that specific addition shift, another thing that happened that is worth mentioning is they removed the open gaming license when they went from 3.5 to 4th. And that was Wizards of the Coast closing the door on those third-party people in a very, uh, like, legally binding way. Like, oh, you can make all these modules and stuff for third edition, have fun, have a blast, get 100% of the profit. We're coming out with fourth edition. If you produce those modules for our rule set, we're going to sue the crap out of you. So it was like a very night and day. And that's why Pathfinder was, you know, developed and produced by the people that worked at Paizo's because they were effectively going to be out of a job. So that specific edition shift also had that undertone. Yeah, I don't know. I think to, I guess, kind of originally answer the question, um, I think that it's time to retire a system when you're out of ideas. Like, honestly, some of the source books towards the end of like PF1, they feel pretty phoned in, kind of like some almost rehashed content of like, oh, here's this new thing. Oh, that's just X from some old book, just slightly different. And you're like, okay, so we're we're mm-hmm. kind of out of stuff to do, right? And maybe that's a reason when we go to a new edition, they're like, we can't just keep the same thing and you know slightly iterate on it because then why would we go to a new edition? And maybe that answers my own question from earlier. Um, but like you were saying with like the high level concepts of you're playing a character, you're rolling dice, that sort of thing. I mean, but th- that's true of Pathfinder, D&D, Star Wars, Shadowrun, Dresden Files. You play a character, you roll some dice. It's let's, like let's, have- uh, let's not bring Starfinder into this, okay? Well, let's, have, let's have an equitable conversation about, you know, good role playing systems. We don't, need to, we don't need to bring Starfinder in here, Matthew. I didn't say Starfinder. You did. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, it's just the PTSD. I will say this. The parts of Starfinder where you were playing your character were very enjoyable. The parts where you were uh, a cog on the ship uh, minigame were very unenjoyable. That's my main takeaway there. They swung and they missed, I think, is really the answer for that. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um so, so you were talking. <laughs> and, I mean, if we go with pro baseball, you also miss like eighty percent of the ones you do take. But and, and that's a good. That's a good. What is it? An RBI? Is that correct? Uh, that's isn't that you, like the batting average or whatever? No, RBIs run batted in, but <laughs> okay. If you get a hit, in someone, I, you know, in someone scores. Perfect, perfect. Well, that's a great segue. Moving on to strikes. No, um, I don't have any segue. No, so you were talking. It's a good idea to move away because you need new ideas. It's, it's a good time to move from uh, your old system to a new one, maybe when you've run out of ideas and it seems like you're rehashing some stuff. Um, I do have a short list of things that I thought were good reasons to get rid of your old system. And that was at the top of my list was for new ideas. So I completely agree with that. And I would say that specifically with Pathfinder, a lot of their last books, uh, you you had some that were certainly phoning it in and it felt like it was just a rehash of something that was already out there. But then there were a couple of archetypes or classes that were completely like out there, man. 
you know, they were really powerful. They weren't necessarily balanced. They did with some dealt with some really crazy way of looking at the rules and putting the players in charge of things they're usually not in charge of. And those, to me, are like some of the best books they've produced for first edition were these that, you know, hey, we're flushing the system down the toilet. Might as well just slap whatever we want in this. This is your last chance to print something for first edition. Go wild. And I think a lot of the developers really did. So some of those later books have some really awesome things in it. But I feel like it's the books before them almost that have these really boring rehashed things. I mean, the current Simpsons occasionally has a good episode too, but... We don't need to. We don't need to talk about the Simpsons. I'm, I, you know, 2020 <laughs> is depressing enough. We don't need to talk about that poor television show. You know, the meme that exists from the Simpsons, where uh, Homer is Krusty the Clown for that episode because he went to clown school yeah. and he's beating the Hamburglar to death, and the kid cries and says, oh, yeah. "Stop, stop! It's already dead." That is that show now. <laughs> like, just let it. Just let it go out. <laughs> the Simpsons did, in fact, do it. Simpsons did it first. Okay, so yes, there's the new ideas. That's always a good thing. A a sidebar to that is that maybe technology existed that did not exist when you released your original system. So this has this has could be both good and bad, right? You could go the George Lucas route. I always wanted a bunch of bizarre alien creatures in every scene of my original trilogy. I just didn't have the technology at the time. So now I'm going to re-edit all of them, uh, which is terrible, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. But there's also the good side of it, like uh, Richard Garfield, the guy who designed Magic the Gathering, famously is known for really hating the fact that maybe not hating. I don't know. I don't know him personally. He ne- doesn't actually. He disapproves of the way that Magic players will go online and find deck lists of like really good decks. And then they'll go out and buy those cards individually and then play those decks in tournaments. And that is what I would say, Matt, 100% of competitive Magic players do. Like actual competitive Magic players. Pretty much. I would like say that a big 99%. Part, yeah. yeah. A big so, part of that is that he literally, like, I mean, he starts trading card games and could not envision people doing that. Yeah. He basically figured you would buy some packs, play the cards, and that would be that. Well, so the technology didn't exist for him at the time to have this vision of what he wanted his game to be. But now, with the way production is for those games, he released this game last year or the year before called Keyforge, where every single deck is different. They have a batch of like, you know, 500 cards or something, and you get a a 36-card deck or something, and they have done the math. There's over, you know, let's say 3 million combinations or something. So they print 3 million decks, and every single one is different. It is physically impossible to get two that are the same. Every single one is different, and the first rule of the game is you cannot trade cards between decks. So you just play with what you got. So that would be an example of the technology didn't necessarily exist for him to produce the kind of game he wanted, but now it does. So he's able to produce it. And that's when you would go to this new edition. And that happens with video games, right? All the time. Like some of these video games are so incredible nowadays. Like you just physically couldn't have them even two years ago. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, kind of in that same vein, just new people, right? Back in the early nineties, when Garfield was coming up with magic, he didn't have all of these other people that helped design it. Or, I mean, look at like Gygaxian D&D versus current D&D, right? And 
it's like there's other people who have other ideas and if you want to get them into the game maybe you can but maybe they don't function under the current rules and if you want those things you need a new addition yeah and it's happening less and less right we're we're i feel like we're at the crest of this tidal wave of you know positive new thinking and new game philosophy and game design but you know back in the 90s it would be very commonplace to just have like scantily clad buxom ladies all over your game so maybe it's time to rebrand that game with less of that because you realize you're cutting out 50 percent of your market share by objectifying women you know and i think that a lot more modern games don't do that as much you know rightly they shouldn't but back in the 90s that was commonplace right that's what everyone was doing the yeah. sega the yeah. sega tournament where they played sonic or whatever uh the rock the rock tournament that I saw in this documentary, they had like some supermodel there as the, the the version of the Twitch announcer, basically. And she, of course, has no idea what the game's like anything about the game necessarily. She's just there because she's an attractive woman. So we've hopefully we're getting away from that. But yeah, so there's two sides to what you said, right? There's new audience members, but then there's also uh, new perspectives. So you have you're having new people every year that you want to get buying your system. But then you also have new people that want to join your company every year that are coming from different age groups or different backgrounds and are going to bring a new perspective to the game. And that's what's going to change maybe your worldview over the next five to 10 years. And you realize that this game you designed isn't the game you would design now with the tools and knowledge you have now, right? You have this new crop of talent that has a completely different understanding of how games are designed or how your game could be improved and you have a new audience that you need to attract so that's where you start moving to this new system where you can take advantage of all that yeah i mean i your comment about like having like scantily clad women and things uh even in addition like they wizards has changed any future printings of the curse of strahd which is like a classic adventure from the 80s but it's depiction of i honestly don't remember the name in game but they're basically a caricature of romani people and like that's just been mm-hmm. that's just been in the game for like 30 years and the the newest printings they didn't change that and like you know current uh like the current climate like they got a bunch of backlash and then they changed it so now new printings are eroded to not have that and it's like you know they can sort of do that but that means there are still fifth edition fifth edition versions of that book that have the old depictions that they don't, they no longer want. And it's like, how do you get rid of that outside of just being like, Oh, it's new edition, new book. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for better or worse, that is a much smaller, you know, ethnic group that's going to be offended. And like that, that's not mainstream. If it was, you know, dealing with like African-American people or dealing with, LGBTQ community in a negative light, I'm sure that that would have been eroded a lot sooner, right? And that's that's just the nature of things is that the Romani people aren't some hot button issue for the U.S. right that's now. Because they aren't in the U.S., but yes. I mean, they are, but not in the same extent, right? Yeah, they don't have... Anyways, we don't have to go down that path. <laughs> yeah, no. A complete sidebar to not not say it only happens at Wizards of the Coast, the first adventure path they made for the Pathfinder rule set, Rise of the Rune Lords, one of my friends, friend of the show, Anthony, uh, who was on a couple episodes ago, I think, uh, told me that when that came out, 
all of the ogres in one of the books were like a bunch of like redneck hillbilly ogres and uh, a bunch of people got upset about that. So they, in subsequent printings, made them a lot less incesty, I guess is the best way of putting it. <laughs> so interesting. Yep. You know, it, it happens across, and that came out in 2007 or something. So it happens, you know, does not, it's not an old thing. Um, it's still happening, you know, within 10 years or something, 13 years. Yeah. And the last thing that I thought would be a good reason to like get to a new system is there's that uh, initial excitement that I feel that I imagine you feel from our conversations and probably other people that play these games of, you know, it's a new system. I, I don't know what the best option is. I don't know instinctively that like dwarves are just better than elves in every way. You know, th the rules are not necessarily defined. And even if they are defined and you find some exploit or something that's super duper strong, chances are with games these days, a lot of that stuff gets fixed within the first month or two because the game company typically has a very strong, you know, social media presence and they're communicating back and forth with their customer base. And if a lot of the customers say, hey, you know, dwarves are way too strong, elves are really shit, they're going to balance that out. So you get that excitement as a new player of in exploring this new system and really diving into the new rules in a way that you can't if you, you know, wanted to, if you wanted to start playing like Pathfinder first edition now, and you type in barbarian, you're going to have over 500, you know, forum posts, people telling you how to build your barbarian. But for like Baldur's Gate 3, which is an early access release that just came out a month ago or less, you're going to have a lot less of that because people don't know what the right answer is yet. Yeah, and it is, I think that's, I don't think that's as big of a deal for most players, but I can see it affecting some people. Yeah, I know that whenever I'm interested in a game and I'm starting up, you know, any sort of role-playing game and I have to make this choice that you can't really change, right? If you start as a cleric, you can't become a fighter. Like, you are a cleric, right? Uh, if I'm making that choice at the start of a game that I'm really excited about and I know this game's going to last, you know, 50 or 100 plus hours, I definitely go online and look at what that class gets later on. Otherwise, I know I'm going to play for the first five hours, level up a couple of times, realize that I made poor decisions and then I'll just start the game over because I want to, I want to have like that cool character that like, I feel like I've understood the system enough to design something I'll enjoy. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. And like, I don't think though, actually, I think if anything, a new addition with less options makes doing that easier. Yeah. No, certainly. And that's that's one of the benefits, right, to going to that new edition is there's a lot less confusion as to what the right thing to do is. So you don't feel like you have to do the same thing everyone else does. You have a little more room where you can explore. So, yeah, so the last thing I thought about as I was thinking about all of these things in this just this generic topic was specifically how World of Warcraft handles this problem. You know, I was talking with someone else. Um, last week or the week before about an article they read with World of Warcraft where it's the longest running, I don't know exactly what the the term is, but it's basically like the longest running MMO, right? That has still a sizable player base. Like it's a 15 plus year old game that still a lot of people are playing that they're still producing a lot of new content for. Unlike, you know, EverQuest, which is older, or RuneScape, right? Which is older, but they're not producing this stuff for it. 
anymore in the same volume nearly. So how do you keep your however many millions of players and all your shareholders invested in this game? A real easy fix, right, would be to just come out with World of Warcraft 2. You keep your shareholders happy, you make a brand new game, you get all of the benefits we've been talking about to going to a new system. But yeah. they're in this really problematic situation where unlike other role-playing games where maybe you've invested you know, $3,000 in books or you bought every expansion to Baldur's Gate 2, great, you spent $100. Like, it's a lot different with World of Warcraft because people have been playing it for 15 years on and off. That's a monthly cost. That's all the expansions they've bought, not to mention all the hours they've put in. And the way the game's designed is if you collected something 10 years ago, you still have that. Like if you found some super cool mount 10 years ago, all of your characters have that now forever. So if they went to a new version of the game, all those people would like lose that stuff. And that, that'd be a huge problem for them. So it's just, it's just kind of like an interesting design problem. And I think the way that they've combated it is whenever they come out with these expansions, they're effectively coming out with a new edition of the game because it's all digital, they can completely change how you know your fighter, your wizard, or whatever the corollary is in the game. You can change how these classes work. If we go back to our talk about the wizard, um, maybe the wizard was like really, really good in this last expansion of World of Warcraft, and then we're coming out with a new version. We can completely re rewrite how that class works, and it's going to piss a lot of our players off but at least their wizard still has access to all the mounts and all the, the armor they found and all the other knickknacks and all their gold that they've saved up for the last 10 plus years. So they get a little bit of a pass with that. So whenever these expansions come out, they're pretty ruthless sometimes with how they dissect and put back together all of the classes, which is what they do every time an expansion comes out, which is every couple of years. It's just very interesting from a design perspective. Yeah, also... I think that last part you said there, every couple of years has a big thing to do with it. You know, compare that to like Paisa, who was pumping books out like, I swear, what is it, every month? Gosh, one hardback every three months, an adventure every month, and I think two source books a month. So yeah. in a year cycle, you got like 30 plus new books, all of which had rules for the game on one level or another. Yeah, and I mean, even compare that to what Wizards has been doing with 5th edition, where it's like one hardcover a year. Yes, if you if you exclude and the like, modules, yes. Yeah, like a module, but like the splat book, like it's one. Because the modules don't really have rules in them. They may have like... They have some very minor stuff. Yeah, some but, very minor setting specific stuff, for sure. And a lot of that is, you know, every month or two we come out with a new... Uh, module, which is like an adventure for people to play through. And then, like you were saying, once a year, we come out with one of these generic rule books for everyone to use. Yeah, it's, it's made it's made 5th edition feel pretty fresh still, despite it's now, I mean, it's been in existence for quite a few years. It stops the biggest problem that I think we talked about, but if not, I guess we'd mention the biggest problem of why you'd want to switch is that your game is stale. Like you've hemorrhaged your players. People are no longer interested because the rules never changed. And everyone just when they play is they pick the same thing. That's the most powerful thing in the world. And the game is boring. Like that's the worst thing that could happen. And it's funny because uh, to go back to our World of Warcraft example that I brought up, they came out with classic like last year. Right. And 
I not to my surprise, but I, I hope not too many people were surprised that as soon as people hit level 60 and were able to do the raid, they completed it in like an hour or something. And usually, you know, world first races take, you know, let's say 11 days or something. They did it in like a fraction of a day because it was all solved because they just went back and looked at all of the data from 15 years ago and saw that this class was the strongest. So they just made a group of like 30 people that were all that class with all the same gear and they just went through and killed it instantly. And it's like, it's not challenging necessarily. It's, it's what you'd expect, like that they did the right thing. And they should be applauded, right, for playing the game like this very high level and and doing that content. But it's a completely different game. It's like playing this old game that's solved and you're just trying to reach all the checkpoints as quickly as possible. It's kind of the equivalent of doing a speed run or something. Yeah, that's actually with Classic specifically. I, I asked Quinn the other day, like, at what point do they stop? Like, what's the end of Classic? So there's I I don't I don't keep up with classic news, but I don't think they've confirmed one way or another. And this is very off topic from where he started, but <laughs> um, I believe that there's you know they're at a, they're at a fork in the road where they're either going to keep on uh, going forward with the classic timeline, meaning that in a year or so we'll get Burning Crusade, and your classic characters can just become Burning Crusade characters, or you know we we give classic the final update it ever had, and then it retires and you could have like a ladder system where those characters would exist on a legacy classic server. And then we just press a button once a year and we reset the servers and everyone can start again. And you can get a new server first because we're just starting over fresh and it's the same race. And that's what the company that makes world of Warcraft does for their other game, Diablo two and Diablo three, where every so often they reset the ladder and all of your characters go on to like a legacy server, and then you can make a new ladder character. And with Diablo 2, there's no more new content for it. Um, but with Diablo 3, every time the ladder resets, they retool the classes and come out with new armor sets and things like that. So it keeps Diablo 3 fresh, and for Diablo 2, it's just again, oh man, I remember I used to play this game back then. I'm going to hop in and like make a new character on the ladder and play for a couple of weeks and then reach level cap and be done, because there's nothing else to do in the game. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very weird because in terms of design, when the the guys, you know, the guys and gals or whatever sat down 15 years ago and you know, put together World of Warcraft, there's no way they thought the the whole goal of the game was to have this system that you would keep building on, right? It'd be this living world where we'd like release content for it, new continents would unlock and people would like join guilds and there'd be all this world PVP and stuff like that and people would be exploring all the time. So it's almost the antithesis of that to say 15 years down the road, we're just going to go back to like that original idea and just start people over. Go ahead and explore the shit you explored 15 years ago. It's, it's very weird, right? It's, it's not what the game was designed to be. Yeah. I don't know. It, it is bizarre, but I think it, it taps into that nostalgia, right? Of people that maybe didn't get to play it a lot or they want to like relive those memories of doing this like oh i remember doing this dungeon and getting this sword to drop and it was this really great moment when i got my sword for my rogue and now i can go back and relive that moment but yeah at what point does it stop i mean that's the question you'd ask of any mmo right or any D D game at what point does it stop you know i guess when you stop playing it there's no winning right yeah <laughs> yeah anyway that was just 
you know, it was it was something I was thinking about this week because Shadowlands, the latest expansion for World of Warcraft, is delayed without a release date yet. And uh, this week, just yesterday, actually, there were these wildfires in California that are yeah, I saw that. very close to where the World of Warcraft servers are, you know, or I guess some of them. I imagine they have backups and backups. But it was just this idea of like, what if, you know, this system ended, you know, like what are the benefits of a system ending? When should a system end? And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this stuff. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's something we did talk around. I don't know if we had a whole episode where we talked about just in general, this concept of, you know, a system needing to end at some point organically. We talked about it when uh, Pathfinder came out with second edition, but that felt like so out of the blue to me that I I didn't even I didn't even think that was like on the radar, right? Yeah, no, that was like very under wraps, it felt like when it came out. Yeah, for sure. They were definitely keeping that close to the chest. And and it was the year before they released uh Starfinder. So everyone thought that the thing they were keeping hush hush was this whole new game system. When in reality it was a second whole new game system, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. Yep. Anyway, no, it's just it's just an interesting thing. Did you have any final thoughts on that topic before we went to our closing? No, but I can segue into our close. Okay, yeah, why don't you take it away? Sure. So you said you made a comment earlier about, you know, like I already own all these books. I don't want to buy new books and things like that. Yeah. And I was reading today about a uh, it's some new virtual tabletop that I hadn't heard of before. And I was looking at it. And it's like, oh, this looks pretty cool. And it's like, oh, it's 50 bucks. Like they want, it's a, a one-time purchase of $50. And I was like, that that's a lot, especially because it doesn't come with any content, right? And it got me thinking, well, you know, if I signed up for like a Roll20 Pro account or something like that, or Fantasy Grounds, like you wind up spending a lot of money on this digital content. And then that, which was like, it was very off-putting because I already own all of this content like in paper, but the cost of like me going, so this, this new one, it's called the, the foundry, it's called foundry. It has a, it ha- it's built in functionality that it can import things from your D and D beyond account. I was like, okay, cool. But I don't own any of this stuff on D and D beyond. And my thought was like, <laughs> wow, like I already spent $50 on the book. I don't want to go spend another 30 bucks buying it on D&D Beyond just so I can import it into this $50 piece of software. Yeah, it's a big ask. That's for sure. Yeah, it just, I was thinking of like, I was really, because I really want to run Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, the, the newest D&D adventure. But like with COVID and everything, it's just like not in the cards to happen unless I do it online. So I was thinking like, okay, what do I want to run it with if I want to try to put the game together? And like this, Foundry software looks really good. I don't have a problem paying the 50 bucks and like roll 20 pro is $10 a month. So after five months, you've already broke even. Right. But I was like, I cannot bring myself to spend that much money on the books again. And then the alternative is like that. I type everything in by hand, right? Nope. You already prepped the game once you don't need to prep it again. That's the hard break point for me. I did three books of Shattered Star, where I had to manually import everything. And I just realized I was effectively wasting, you know, two to three hours before any session, 
like I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, improving as a game master. I was just typing in lines of text into a stat block over and over again. It was just not worth it. I still use fantasy grounds, but I just want to use it for games that come preloaded. And if the cost mat was, you know, if I wanted the whole campaign, the cost would be like $120, which is absurd because I already own it. But since I have a digital copy of it that I already own, the company has an arrangement with Paizo where it's way less. So it costs me like $30 or something for the whole campaign. So it's a lot more cost affordable. And then I talked to my players and said, hey, it's like 30 bucks for this adventure. And then if you want your character book, it's like 40 bucks. If you want your character book, it's 40 bucks. So at the start of the game, they all just PayPal'd me like 30 or 40 bucks. And then I was able to buy everything. So yeah, that might just, be something you can do. I could. I'm like, I'll think about it. It's just a, a hard ask because it's like, if we were playing in person, the cost would be zero, right? Because I own all these books and they could just borrow them. Now it's like, oh yeah, you guys want to play this game that I'm running? It's only going to cost you $40. Well, and so that's the thing is that it's a big ask, but at the same time, unprecedented times, yada, yada, yada. Also, I would say if it is robust software, that $50 one-time fee is way cheaper. I pay for Fantasy Grounds and I pay that monthly amount. And it's, you know, every now and then I check my bank and I'm like, what the hell? What's this like $9.99 PayPal charge? I did not. Oh, yeah. Yep, I did. My bad. <laughs> yeah, my, my like the, the $50, like I said, that's five months of Roll20 or something. 50, 50 bucks for a piece of software that's new and being updated and everything. That wasn't a problem. It's mostly this idea of like, God, I don't want to buy these books again. <laughs> I already own them. Or in my case, like, yeah. again, 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 because I had them in physical and in digital and in this software now. Yeah. I was just thinking like, why... Why does Wizards not, I don't expect necessarily that like, oh, I bought the physical book for 50 bucks. I should get a free digital copy because there is, there is work that goes into creating the digital copy. For sure. Especially if you get, if you get a nice PDF of uh, a lengthy book like that, that's, you know, what, 450 pages or something. If they take the time to go through and put hyperlinks and all that stuff, where if you click on one part, it takes you to another part and all that, which is how I imagine they would do it because that's how the Pathfinder ones are. Yeah, exactly. That's, that is so well worth it in my mind. Yeah. I'm just like, I just have to wonder like, could wizards be, Oh, you spent $50 on the physical copy. You can like enter your UPC or whatever and get, you know, 50% off the digital copy. Like you still have to buy it, but it's not 30 bucks. I think the last thing I would say, Matt, is that there's can and there's will. Can they? A hundred percent. Yeah, they make more money. Will they? No. (laughs) Yeah. Because because what's that game called, Matt? That's not called Tunnels and Trolls. That's not called like Matt's role playing system. That's called Dungeons and Goddamn Dragons, Matt. And you're paying for that premium. (laughs) Except except that if I I don't know, if I were to go out there and somehow acquire said PDF, the the laws on my side because I've already purchased the content. I'm sure it's just not coming from a convenient source. Yeah. No, uh, my cousin in Guam sent me this. You mean that's not okay? Literally doesn't uh, matter. I already bought it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in keeping with the theme of digital or trying to stay connected during this remote thing, mine will actually not be about role playing games. My friend Cody that I've met through playing world of Warcraft, he and I were, you know, like, playing a game or whatever we got bored we ran out of stuff to do in the game because you know world of warcraft is in this limbo where there's nothing there's no new content so the game's basically starved for content right now and you're waiting for the next thing to come out 
So we're looking for something to do. And I saw on Netflix, there was this new series called The Queen's Gambit, which looks pretty cool. It's about a chess prodigy in the 60s. That's a lady who has some pretty serious attitude to her and a pretty serious drinking problem, you find out. And she plays chess and she kicks the shit out of almost everyone she plays chess against. So I'm like, oh, this looks like fun. Do you want to watch this? So we just watched it on Discord and it was great. It's like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or whatever, but you're part of the audience. So I'm going to try to get other people uh, that I know online that I play games with. You know, let's sit down and like, let's just like start a TV show together that we watch like an episode of a night if we can. And we just talk shit while it's happening. So I don't know. It's yeah, It was a lot of fun. fun. I mean, it's what we do on Friday with the movie nights, but with all the problems with actually meeting in person with a large group of people. And, you know, if you want to be safe or if you live in an area that's having like really high spikes of cases right now or any of that, or if you live with someone that has any pre-existing conditions or all that crap, it's a lot easier to just do it all digitally. And it isn't as good, right? It's never as good as sitting in the same room with someone having a beer, watching TV, but it's still pretty good because you don't have to wear pants. (laughs) I mean, that is a big bonus. Yeah. And you know how much I don't like wearing pants when there's people here. So but yeah, anything else you want to end with? No, I think I think we covered it pretty well. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you probably in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. See ya. 